You're about to listen to a true story told live because this is True Stories Live. Brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. Simon Kindly Sides. Hi. Cool. So, um, yes, my name is Simon Kindly Sides. Um, just I'll go before I start my story. I am actually paralyzed from the waist down. So, this, um, if you've not heard of an exoskeleton suit before, uh, this is allowing me to stand up and walk and climb stairs um, by this fancy watch. So, I'll go into more detail on that. So we've gone back um, from April 2013, where, um, well, actually in 2009, I actually got viral meningitis, which then left my left weakness in the left side of my body. Um, so I went on, struggled by, I was a dancer, and I was a manager of a restaurant. I worked 70 hours a week, and um, I had a headache, uh, went to bed. This was in April 2013, and woke up in the morning to go to the toilet, and I couldn't move. Um, so I couldn't have any feeling from the waist down, so I was trying to stand up, and it couldn't work. So I was admitted into hospital. Um, they originally thought it was appendicitis. Um, so I was um, put into the, the wards where you have your operations and they came through and I said to them, I actually can't feel my right leg because my left leg was weak anyway. So they then went and done a load of tests and different consultants were coming in as they do and they speak to you in a lot of jargon, the words you don't even understand and you've just gone, okay, yeah, just agree and saying, I don't understand that. So I had MRIs, I had blood tests, I had, they would test me for absolutely everything, and I was seeing a different consultant every day. And then um, about three, four days, uh, I actually made friends with a nice consultant, and I said to him, just talk to me like you would your mate down the pub. I said, just come in, speak to me in pure English so I understand what's going on. So I'm sitting there, uh, minding my own business. He came in, sat on the end of the bed, and he said to me, Simon, you've got a brain tumor. So as you can imagine, it was, um, it was my fault for saying to him, speak to me uh, with words that I would understand. Um, and it completely hit me uh, like a steamroller um, rolling over me. Um, I didn't really know how to digest it um, because they had to send the report because of the type of tumor it was. It had to go to Adenbrooks. And it was a seven-day wait because they only had con uh, consultant meetings on a Monday. So I had seven days of laying in hospital um, thinking to myself, am I going to die? What type of tumor is it? And I think the worst part of that was is that I wasn't in a room of my own. There was five other people in the ward, and they told me this news by pulling the curtain around, which they think it's soundproof and nobody else can hear. And then when they actually told me the news, it was during visiting hours. So you can imagine I was hysterical and it was an absolute mess. And they said to me, we advise you bring your parents. So that was a call that I never thought in a million years that I'd had to ring my mum and dad because they're, they're not together. So that was two phone calls I had to make. And just having them at the end of the phone hearing the news. And I said to them, I've got a brain tumor. And as you can imagine, it was just a complete mess. So I was laying in hospital. I was there for four months. Um, I was discharged. And I just had to keep positive. I was a father of two children then. Um, and I couldn't go home because my apartment was on the first floor and I had no lift. So I was then homeless for six, seven months before the council rehoused me into a suitable accommodation. So while I was thinking to myself, OK, I'm not going to let this beat me because it's an inoperable tumor, but it's not cancerous, it's a benign one. But it's grown in the core of my brain, so it's inoperable, they can't get to it. 
So it stemmed from there. So I thought to myself, okay, right, I'm going to challenge myself and let's do this. So I hand-cycled from London to Paris because I thought, as you do. Um, I've never been to Paris before, and I saw the brochure of the Eiffel Tower, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And, and um, we did it over four days, and uh, a quick joke with that, it was on the third day, and I had no one's contact details um, of the, you know, of all the other people running it. We just had a Facebook group page on Facebook. And um, I unlocked the door, got into the hotel room. It's an old-fashioned one with a key. It wasn't like an electronic card or nothing. And I locked the door behind me because I suffer with short-term memory problems, so I didn't want to lose the key. So then when I went to the bathroom, it was a sliding door. So as I opened the door, I uh, got off the wheelchair, pushed it out of the room, the other side of the door with my towels on it, and sh shut the sliding door. And you know what's going to happen, because I had a shower. And then when I was finished, I tried to open the sliding door. And as I pulled it, the bloody handle come off. And I was like, now what's going to do? Because luckily, my phone was in the bathroom listening to music. So I had to make a Facebook status and say, I'm in room 115, and I'm stuck in the bathroom. Well, everyone thought I was taking the piss, so like, yeah, whatever. We're having a drink, we're waiting for you. So there's about 70 people who've done this race all at the restaurant waiting for me. And I said I was only gonna have a quick shower, so probably thinking I was doing plenty of other stuff as well. So they had to, they had to smash the door down with a sledgehammer to get through the front door. And uh, then they had to use a hammer to s open the sliding door to get into the bathroom, which I was greeted by six guys who's in the Navy. I was in the complete buff, sat on the toilet. And uh, they were there with their phones. So I finished at the Eiffel Tower, and that to me just, you know, um, when people say you're an inspiration, you're this, you're that, and I was determined to do more. And then my health just deteriorated from there. So um, about seven months after doing the bike ride, I had a stroke. Um, so I couldn't use the left side of my body at all, including my left arm, and I couldn't speak. So it was, uh, and as my profession, I'm a singer. So you can imagine, I couldn't walk, I couldn't talk, and that was it. I wanted to go and didn't want to live anymore. Um, because I felt I was the burden pain on my family, which I still feel to this day, because I feel like they're in pain because of me. And so that pushed me on, thinking like, you know, it's, it's not going to be the end of that. So I had seizures. Um, it was a rocky road. Uh, I went to America to visit my grandparents, and um, I was in the pub drinking Coke, and uh, I woke up four days later because I had a seizure and it put me into a coma uh, when I was in the States. And uh, just thought I'd let you know that the insurance company are refusing to pay, so I've been footed an £87,000 bill, which they're going to get £5 a month because I'm on, <laughs> I'm on disability benefits, so they're not going to get all that. And, um, so then about six months after, no, actually a few months after, I came back home and uh, separated my partner. So it was a bit of a rocky situation. I was only with her for three months, uh, so I don't really count that as a relationship. Um, and while I was visiting her house, um, sh she said she was talking to me and I was looking through her, so I wasn't really, um, I wasn't responding. And I collapsed out of my wheelchair and I actually died on her kitchen floor. Uh, my heart stopped and I wasn't breathing. So she had to give me CPR mouth-to-mouth -mouth while the ambulance crew turned up, and um, they had to come and shock me with the pads to bring me back to life. So before that happened, my massive phobia for me was dying because I, I don't want to die, and um, I feel to myself that I've got more chance of dying than somebody else, I guess. And so my massive phobia of that now is the fact that I've, been, I've died and I've been brought back to life. Um, so 
I have night terrors that um, I'll share it with you because, you know, it's quite funny, but at the same time, it's bloody scary because I can't run away either in my dream. But so I'm on my life support machine in my dream, and the cleaner comes in and unplugs the machine to plug in the Hoover. <laughs> so as that instance happened, I'm waking up screaming and no sounds coming out and stuff like that. So I then came in, found out about the exoskeleton world, um, pushing the health to one side, and I was determined to, to do other stuff. So I found out that it was a Rex Bionics, and I used it to film an episode of Come Dime With Me. Um, so I was on there, it was filmed a couple of years ago, I don't know if you saw it, I had red hair then, um, and I didn't win. Uh, I was too generous, uh, gave people too high scores. Um, so from there, I'd done other TV shows. I was then a judge on uh, BBC One Altogether Now. I uh, worked with Jerry uh, from the Spice Girls, and she was hot in uh, real life. Sat on, my, <laughs> sat on my lap as a selfie, and I'm not washed them jeans still. Um, and Rob Beckett was absolutely hilarious. He ripped the piss out of me all the time. Uh, so that was great. So I'd done that. So while I was doing the show, I was determined to do something else. And I was like, OK, I want to do a marathon. And um, my friends were sitting at Brewers Fair, and I said, I'm going to do a marathon. They went, yeah, yeah, cool, in the wheelchair. It's like, no, I'm going to walk it. And they're like, what? Yeah, absolutely crazy. So I had a trial in this suit, uh, which is called a rewalk, and I walked to my garden for the first time in four years. That felt amazing. Posted a video on, you, on my Facebook page and my journey, and I got nearly 30,000 views, I think it was, because um, I was like, oh, my God, I'm walking on grass. You know, it sounds so simple, but I didn't, even though I didn't feel the grass, but um, I was walking across the grass. So I trialed the suit and I said to them, I'm going to use this suit to walk a marathon because three years prior to that, a lady did uh, the marathon in this suit that took her three weeks to complete the London Marathon. And I was like, right, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to smash that. <laughs> and um, so we were doing training. And while I was doing training, the battery life, can, can, I can walk consecutively for four miles. Uh, so that was the furthest I got to walk during training. And we would walk around Whitling Lake. Um, but when we were doing the training, it was like minus two, it was freeze, and I had like 50,000 layers on, and a jumper, and a coat, and leggings, and tights, and eight pairs of socks, and everything you can imagine. And it came to the morning of the London Marathon, um, and I, I'd done it, and it was the hottest marathon weather in history. And we wasn't prepared for that. I was like, oh my God, I got to wear shorts and a vest. Like I wasn't, you know, I was expecting to wear like jogging bottoms and stuff like that. So we started the race with everybody else, and I was at the back, obviously, and um, we started, me and my team, they were a great team. Um, wouldn't have been able to done it without them because it was um, to be accepted to walk the marathon was eight months' worth of meetings. I was told two months prior to the actual race that I was accepted to do it because I wasn't allowing a, a robotic suit to do it, even though I have to do all the work. Because I said if I could press play, I'd finish that marathon in an hour and not having to walk for t more than 38 hours. So overall time is about 38 hours of doing the marathon, but we had to stop because we had to change the suit and battery's time. But I actually completed the marathon in 27 hours and 32 minutes. I crossed the finish line. Thank you very much. So I got to the last mile, and I tell you, my brain was a mashed potato, and I didn't know where I was, and I was just like, felt like I was, in a, you know, in a, well, I was drifting off somewhere else, I think, and I was in absolute agony. And... Um, you have to call. And uh, so while I was coming up towards the finish line, Buckingham Palace police, they all came over and they were what to walk the last bit with me to Palm Isle to my finish line. And um, it was felt amazing. So I got a letter from the Queen, uh, Kate and Williams sent me something and the Prime Minister. So I was um, buzzing about that. So I found out about two weeks ago that I actually uh, got a Guinness World Record. Um, so it's, yeah, thank you very much. And um, so I'm the fastest rewalk walker to complete a marathon in the world. Um, you know, no one's going to smash my time, and if they do, they're up against a challenge with me. 
So I'm going to be in the Guinness Book of Records this September. It's going to be released and the 2020 edition. So it's an absolute dream come true for me. And I just want to finish off to say there's no such thing as can't. You can achieve anything you put your mind to. So thanks for listening. Live as a story show and story finding project brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. For more information about all of the work that we do, head to our website truestorieslive.co.uk.